When I met Keshava, he had hair to hear that was almost Swami orange. Unfortunately, you all missed that period. <laughs> it's just gone now, but it was bright, bright red. Yeah, it was very wonderful, and he showed up. And uh, since tonight is about the early years, that's what I'll start with. When I moved to Ananda Village in 1971, on, in June 1st, um, a, a month later I was given responsibility for cooking, um, running the kitchen and cooking. I was a terrible cook, and it was really hard on the community for a long time, but I was efficient, so I always put something on the table. Um, we had this, in, uh, the, the whole community, uh, for those of you who have been there and have seen Ananda Village, I didn't live in Ananda Village, I lived at the meditation retreat, which was a, really a forest ashram, very isolated, six miles back on unpaved roads, no electricity, um, and that, in those days uh, there was no email or anything like that, it hadn't even been considered. No television, no radio, no telephone. So when you were way back in that community place, we were just completely cut off from the world. It was absolutely wonderful. Um, the only electricity was a generator to run the water pump, which was also hooked up to the kitchen. So if you heard the generator on, you could run the blender or something like that if you were quick and acted on it. We had gas, uh, gas lights, kerosene lights, gas heaters or wood stoves mostly, lived very simply, just little huts really that we more or less constructed ourselves or little trailers that we brought in, usually just really old things that you could just barely get in there and the, you just abandon them under the trees. Um, we had very little money, very little prospect of getting money, at least in our own minds, uh, and it was all just absolutely wonderful. I remember walking around thinking, I have, I have so little now, and as the years pass, I'll have even less. And it was just a great delight to me. I was 24 years old and just had no expectations, except that I'd met Swami Kriyananda. He was living there. I was going to have the opportunity to learn everything I always wanted to know about life. And it was so much fun. It was just more than anything else, it was just so totally fun. I was asked a question, uh, I was just in Singapore for a few days and someone said to me in a very, you know, uh, sort of way, was Swamiji extremely strict? Strict. I had, to, I had to even stop and think for a minute. Strict? No, I said, he was so loving and he was so much fun. But when I actually stopped to think about it, and then I, I did explain it to him, you know, that, that doesn't imply that in any way life was, that he was lax. It was more that he led by, he led by the extraordinary attractiveness of his own example. That it was just obvious that whoever he was, whatever he was doing, you wanted to do it also. He never actually, in, in years later, this came out in other contexts, he really never asked anything of us. Occasionally he would, he would ask if you wanted to take on a certain job or he would make suggestions about things, but he never, there were, there were no like rules laid down. This is what you have to do, this is where you have to be, that's what you have to do, and if you don't do it, this will happen to you. It was always just by generating this just delightful flow of energy 
that made you just want to be where he was and doing what he was doing. I, was, I remember when Keshava came in, I, by that point I was running the kitchen. Um, we cooked three meals a day for about 30 people, I think, 30 or 40 people who didn't have their own kitchens. We just, we didn't, or, or their own bathrooms or anything. We just had basically shelters. And there was a central bathhouse and we arranged plumbing and um, very simple manners, let's just leave it there. And, uh, and so everybody had to come to the meals. We didn't have a dishwasher because we didn't have electricity, so the dishwashers were the people who came. <laughs> so that's where I remember meeting Keshava most of all, is that I would make these meals and these enormous stacks of dishes, and he would come in and dutifully wash them. He wasn't the only one, but out, we spent hours in there where I was dirtying the dishes and he was washing them, and just all, we just all became friends. And every part of it um, just seemed like a, the, the happiest thing that had ever happened, that we could live so simply. And when I look back on it, it's a little, it's, you know, it, let me say it this way. I realized much later that I was living on two levels when I went there. When I, I went there with full enthusiasm and I was extremely happy to be there and simultaneously the decision to move to Ananda also caused a certain amount of what seemed like major turbulence. In retrospect, seems like minor turbulence, but it felt like major turbulence in my life. So I was also kind of going through all these expectations of other people and what I expected of myself and all these different things. So much so that the first Christmas I was there, I came on in June, and then that year, which would have been Christmas of 71, Swamiji decided that he would start the traditions that Master had at Mount Washington. And at Mount Washington, there was basically a three-day Christmas. There was an all-day meditation, and then on Christmas Eve day, um, we, would, we would cook for the banquet for the next day, and then Christmas Eve night, uh, we would have a party. It was a social party. It was both social and inspirational. It was a little bit of both. And then on Sunday, which would be Christmas Day itself, we would open presents, um, Swamiji liked Handel's Messiah. He hadn't yet written his own oratorio. It was years before he did. So we would listen, meditate to Handel's uh, story of Christ, which was beautiful music. Have, and then uh, we'd serve Indian food because, I mean, I don't know, we were all just from America and knew nothing. There was one Indian man, Kursi Bulsara, was there. Um, but the rest of us knew nothing. Swami taught me to cook Indian food because he, he wanted to be able to eat it and didn't want to have to cook himself, so he taught me. I thought I was a reasonably good cook until I actually met a real Indian person and realized, realized you know, that I knew about that much. Swami just taught me to cook a few dishes that he really liked. And so he taught me to, um, to make an in Indian food that he wanted for that banquet. And then it was Master's habit after the Christmas banquet that he would stand up and he would talk to the community. In America, every year, I think every year, the President of the United States addresses the Congress. <clears throat> and because the U.S. is the, <coughs> excuse me, the Union of Separate States, they call it the State of the Union Address. So Swami's was the State of the Union Address, the State of Our Union with God Address every Christmas. And he would stand up and talk to us. So,
That first Christmas for me was, I had been raised Jewish, so it wasn't only that it was my first Christmas of self-realization, it was my first Christmas ever. I mean, America's a Christian country, more or less, so I wasn't, uh, wasn't that I'd never heard of Jesus or never heard a Christmas carol, but I'd never in my life been close to it. It just wasn't anything I knew. And everything that happened at Ananda in a spiritual sense was so different than what was happening anywhere else because it, it emanated from the inside. It didn't come from sort of rituals that somebody had learned. It was our actual experience being expressed. And Swamiji was essentially creating it because, of course, he'd lived with Master for three and a half years, so he knew how Master was bringing the teachings to America. He'd also been in India for four years, so he also knew what the Sanatan Dharma tradition behind what Master brought. He also knew what that was. But the whole idea... Thank you. The whole idea of this uh, cooperative spiritual community that he was forging out of a group of really uh, uninformed Americans, mostly in our 20s. There was one man, Satya, who was probably about Swami's age, which was about 45. And Satya just seemed unspeakably old to us. We always thought of him as, as the old man. And then there was one actual old man, which was Hanel, who I really thought of as ancient, and I actually think he was about 65, which is younger than I am now. They all seemed so old because the rest of us were just children. Haridas was there. He was, I think he was 18 when he came. He was really young. He came before me, but he was younger than me. But in the midst of all of this, Swami was just, um, he was creating it. He was, he was, he was doing what, what, what Master came to do, which is, uh, which is, if self-realization is the goal of life, and if we are moving, which we are, out of Kali Yuga into Dwapar Yuga, where, where everything that has been true in the past is now just falling away, I mean at, at a stunning rate. Uh, Daya and Keshava were talking to me about how do you describe it? What Modi is doing in, in Varanasi, you know, cutting a, a a pathway from the Ghat up to the temple there? Am I saying that correctly so people know what I'm talking about? I I haven't been to Varanasi in quite a few years. I, I used to lead um, a pilgrimage tour from America to India in, in the footsteps of the Master, which Daya and Keshav actually took over, and that's why we stopped doing it, is because they started living here and doing it. So I did that about a dozen times over 20 years. So I knew, I knew very well an extremely specific little pathway through India. If it wasn't on that tour, I didn't know anything about it. But one of the pathways was through Varanasi, which I, I just adored that city. But when they started talking to me about just taking all, the, all that down, I mean, from my perspective, probably from yours too, how long has all that stood? How long has it always been that way? And now just in my short lifetime, you know, it's going to just look entirely different, something that totally unimaginable that we would mess with tradition like that. But species and languages and countries and cultures 
and clothing. You know, I, I remember being in India 15 or 20 years ago and going into the shop to buy gorgeous Indian clothes and the girl selling it to me was wearing jeans and a t-shirt. You know, and I just remember even at the time that there's, there was something odd about this. But it was, you know, just everything just turning around. So what Master came to bring is by no means a continuation of tradition because when, when yuga shift, either if, it, if it's shifting down, everything is lost. And if it's shifting upward, which was what we're doing, everything is transformed into a higher octave. And that higher octave is the vibration and the spirit of it rather than the form of it. So the forms are being lost, but the forms are being lost in order to liberate the, the vibration of it. Because through all these years of Kali Yuga, um, the forms have become more important in some ways than the spirit. And in many ways the forms have begun to suffocate the spirit. So when Swamiji was there and we were with him in the, through the 70s, the early 70s, and especially during that one decade, um, Swamiji isolated us, is the best way I could put it, the, 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 what we called then the farm, which is now the part of the land that's the village, is actually is six miles from the seclusion retreat. It's on a paved road. It has water and electricity. Even from the beginning, it did. So it's, it still was very far out in the country, but it wasn't as isolated as the retreat. But the retreat and the other place, Ayodhya, where there were three locations where Crystal Hermitage is now. I know some of you have been there, so I'm saying all this. Ayodhya and the retreat were very isolated. But what Swami did is by creating that, that isolation, where we were, we were from modern Western culture, but most of us were in a state of rebellion against it. And it, Indian ideas, the idea of Sanatana Dharma, was sort of just sweeping over a narrow segment of America, but an extremely enthusiastic segment. And Swamiji just kind of put us in a bubble there. And he spent most of his time there. He didn't travel very much at all, just occasionally. He gave us all Indian names. We tended to wear Indian clothes. Swamiji himself walked around in a dhoti much, much of the time. He w wore his hair long. In the summertime when it was hot, he would go bare-chested. Bare he would just walk around in a dhoti with a rudraksha mala. And we were all, and what, the way I think of it now is we were all living a sort of fantasy of some previous Indian incarnation. <laughs> I mean, it was, just, it was just kind of a made-up story. It was somewhere between pure fantasy and past life recollection, is how I would call it. And it, even at that time, uh, the paths, most of the land was inaccessible by automobile, and we didn't have cars anyway, so it really only a few people had cars, or there were community vehicles. So you just could, you had to walk everywhere you walked to. And the paths, uh, later they put gravel on the paths. Gravel was a huge modernization, which many of us resented. Because before they put gravel, it was uh, this very fine brown dust. And we walked around barefoot all summer. And so you, you were really into some, I, I was, I was into some ancient Indian village incarnation, <laughs> walking through the dust to my little hovel somewhere. And it was... I loved it. I loved every minute of it. When they put gravel down, 
it crunched. Which is just like, you wouldn't think that would matter, but it was absolutely silent up there. And when they put gravel down, it crunched. And so all of a sudden you heard people walking all over the place and you couldn't walk barefoot anymore. You know, it was like the first tragedy of my young <laughs> ashram life. <laughs> really, because we thought it was such an improvement because in the winter it was mud, so the gravel was better. But just, so, so Swamiji was able and in, in those first years, many of the people who, who lead communities now, Haridas, Roma came, Roma came a little bit later, but Keshava was there and I was there, Jyotish and Devi, Jaya, I mean names that you all know really well. Um, Diana came a little bit later, but this was this first, many others. Um, I could, Sadhana Devi, of course, um, Seva, I, I was mentioning the names of the people that you all know here the best. But he just kind of gathered us around and began to create an entire new understanding of life. And that new understanding was, as I was starting to say, if, if in fact, which we had fully accepted, self-realization is the goal of life, then what would life look like? How would you organize a society? And it was interesting, a great many of us uh, were, were the same age, within a year or two of each other. It was like it was this, this sort of, Swami had commented to us at one point that the reason Ananda ran so smoothly was because we'd all been a community in the astral world. Which, I, I mean, how that exactly plays itself out, I couldn't say, because I, 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 I remember, we all remember somewhat intuitively, but I don't have a, a plan for what that was really like. But the fact that so many of us incarnated within a year or two of each other, so that we would be in our early 20s, for the most part mostly unmarried, um, almost no children, you know, it, it, at the time. Children, of course, started being born, but um, there were almost no babies to take care of just this incredibly, um, a period of incredible freedom. And simultaneously in America, people were dropping out. So there, there, a lot of people who had a certain track just suddenly went like that and just dropped out into alternate lifestyles of which uh, the, the serious spiritual became a serious one. And America was, is and was, you know, uh, wealthy relatively speaking. So a person, I, I've come to appreciate these things when I travel more since. You know, you could drop out of, of life there and only have a very mild anxiety about being able to step back in. You know, you could drop your career, you could drop your education, even for a decade and step back into it. So even though our parents were more worried about us than we were, in fact there was very little real jeopardy. And so all of that just uh, gave us that we were very malleable is the only thing, word I can think of. And Swamiji was just, he was himself in his mid-40s. Um, many of you who did meet him, you met him in that last decade. And that last decade was so very different from the first decades um, for, for many interesting reasons, um, not the least of which was Swami himself, um, and I, I, I talk about this in the book. The book is nice if you read it from the beginning to the end, but I can't insist because once you're home by yourself, I can't supervise you. <laughs> but I found that people are skipping around, which you may. 
and it's all right, you can even tell me that you've done it and we'll still be friends. But there's a trajectory to Swami's life which was very interesting because he was commissioned by Master. And, and most of us, I mean, even those of us who knew him for a long time, it was, Master was such a living presence to Swamiji. He, Master was, was such a, a current reality. Swami never looked back with nostalgia to the time when he was living with Master. He, he spoke about it, he talked about Master a great deal, but you, you never saw him sort of longing for that period of time. The way I, I put it at one point was Swami lived from those years, but he didn't live in them. He was, he was very much in the present. Swami had three and a half years with Master, which, you know, in, in the history of avatars is not so unusual. Ramakrishna didn't bring his disciples to him until close to the end. Jesus brought his disciples at the end. Swami had other lifetimes with Master where he was even his son, so he had his whole life with him. But he had three and a half years and Swami, Master left Swamiji, left this world when Swami wasn't even 26. And, and Swami was just in the middle of this force. He thought that Master was going to bring him to India and that they were going to you know, travel the country together. And instead, Master had his Mahasamadhi. Master was 59. There was no sign of ill health. It was just his incarnation was finished. But in the short number of years that Swami was with Master, Master made it extremely clear right from the beginning that he had a very high expectation of Swami. I mean, not, not the least of which was saying you have a great work to do. Which Swami, as he said, he always understood that not as a compliment, it was a commandment. It, it was, he was telling him what, what was expected of him. And there were many instances, most of them intuitive, some of them external, in which Swami deeply integrated this responsibility that he had from his guru. And of course, once he was uh, separated from uh, Self-Realization Fellowship, which was in 1962, and Swamiji was completely out on his own, when he also began to perceive how SRF was going to express Master's teachings, which was not the same as the way Swami wanted to express them, that sense of responsibility from Master um, you know, weighed on him even more. Now, when I was in my 20s, probably all the way through my 30s, it took me a long time to really um, understand it from Swami's perspective because he never ever made a, um, anything that you would call a heavy point of this. You know, he never sort of told us, I carry the burden, you know, and you must help me, or there was just nothing, anything like that. It, what, what Swami modeled for us was, isn't this a, a a fabulous, fantastic opportunity we have that here we are and we get to be disciples of this Master and we have such a, a, an open field in front of us in terms of what we can do. And as we gradually began to understand what the yugas were and what it meant to be in, in an ascending yuga, um, you know, Swamiji, we were just, we, were, we, we knew absolutely nothing. 
And in those early years, basically the only book we had was Autobiography of a Yogi. And we didn't even have the first edition of Autobiography of a Yogi. We just had Autobiography of a Yogi. Swami had written a few books and he continued to write a few. By the end of the 70s, he'd written The, the, the Path. So we had more at that point. But we didn't know anything. You know, karma, reincarnation, the chakras, kundalini, any of the words, um, guru even. We just didn't know anything about anything. And Swami just had to teach us everything. And he, you, you can listen to recordings. Actually, the woman who has the archive of Swami's recordings has actually made a companion tape series to go with this book. She went year by year and pulled out a relevant recording of Swamiji, a later a video, so you can actually hear his voice. And sometimes the recording she pulled out is something I mentioned in the book. It, it's really, I was just listening uh, this afternoon to something from a talk he gave in Australia in 1980 or something like that. But the, 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 the salient quality of Swami in those days was this overwhelming force of energy. His voice was a little higher pitched and he spoke very fast and he spoke very forcefully and it was like he was doing battle with, with, with all of our delusions. He would, all the classes that he would give would just, you would feel this just tremendous force of, force of truth and wisdom and willpower, not like he was uh, hurting you, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't trying to force us to do anything. It was more like, the, the way I thought of it later was on the causal level of ideas. There, and, and Swamiji would often talk about this, you know, the same conflict of light and darkness that you see on the material plane also exists on the astral level and it also exists on the causal level. And ideas are what really influence the universe. So the dark force is trying, always trying to assert negative ideas and the light force is trying to assert positive ideas and negative ideas are also hate and violence but they're also the negative ideas that the material world is real that God doesn't exist that I'm I'm the one who's in charge of myself and you know just all of those limited thoughts that death is the end of consciousness everything and so Swamiji was like on on a causal level like when, when we would sit in, in front of him and he would speak, which we had very few other teachers, teachers. He gave almost all the classes. There were lots of classes and he gave them all. Uh, we, when we had a spiritual renewal week, he gave the morning classes and the evening satsangs and the concerts and the Sunday service and the Kriya initiation. He just did the whole thing because there was hardly anyone else who could do anything at all. Plus he was, he was setting the tone and so he didn't really want to turn it over yet. It was a little early to allow anyone else to set the model because what I was saying a moment ago, what he was doing had never existed before. No one, Master had wanted these uh, uh, intentional spiritual communities that were for householders as well as monastics. But Master himself, the effort he made to start one didn't succeed. In Encinitas, he tried and it just as Swami, as Master said, couples were too um, close to the American Depression and they were just too self-protective and the monastics and the householders didn't always get along and it was just, so he, he set the, 
he set the possibility but he didn't succeed so here's Swami he's trying to succeed so he's looking at us I can uh, knowing all that our minds were like and what we were going through I can just imagine it just must have looked to him like just a swirling mass of confusion just he, he, he always loved us and he always believed in our future so he never made us feel as uh, pathetic as we actually were <laughs> You always felt like you were, you know, a potential great soul. That was his greeting to us. Good morning, great souls, he would say. And you would begin to think of yourself that way. But in reality, I think when he looked at the room, it just must have been this swirling mass of confusion. And then he would just put forward this great energy that he would come out in words in which he would be explaining these teachings and trying to get us to understand just by the brilliance of his explanations you know, what these concepts meant. He would just teach them over and over and over because it's, it takes time to, to shift your thinking. And he would, he would just create magnetism. And this was an answer, was he strict? Well, he was always creating this magnetism. And because we were attracted to it, because we wanted to be disciples, we wanted to be uh, Kriya bonds, we wanted to... Uh, we wanted to live a different life. We just wanted to be something other than we'd been brought up to be at that point. And so that magnetism was always there, so you were always um, inclined. It was always drawing on you like this. And the stronger that magnetism got, you either got more and more drawn into it, or you got spun out. In, in the 20th anniversary of Ananda, maybe it was the 25th, um, they, just, they, they made a chronological, of the people who were still part of Ananda, bear in mind, um, they made a chronological list. And my number ended up being number 15. And I was by no means the 15th person to come, but I was the 15th person who was still there. You know? <laughs> because when Swami was generating all that energy, you either got pulled in or you got spun out. And he couldn't really tell us what we were going to do because... We couldn't even imagine it. It, it just was outside. I mean, we were, because we were this little primitive group of people, you know, living on peanut butter. I mean, it was just like there was, there was nothing there that would indicate this. And Swamiji actually even said at one point, he said, I used to tell people what Ananda was, I mean, he said this early, I used to tell people what Ananda was going to become. He said, but I saw instead of inspiring them, it frightened them. Because it was too big, a, too big an energy, too big a responsibility. I remember sitting on the porch of his little house at the seclusion retreat. I, I, I moved in June. In September, he shifted his primary residence from the seclusion retreat to the dome that he had on the land called Ayodhya, which is now Crystal Hermitage. He kept two places. And um, Swami's idea of leadership was actually a very profound one. He said, most leaders spend most of their time trying to convince the reluctant ones to become more enthusiastic. He said, and as long as you're right there trying to convince them, he said, you'll get them to face the right direction. And as soon as you turn your back, they'll just go negative again. So he said, you never really get anywhere. He said, the best way to cultivate, uh, to, to build something, is to take those who are, who, are, who are the most in tune with what you're doing and make them stronger and stronger. Because in that way, then, you'll, you'll, they will become strong enough and they will convert others. That's why 
many of the people who are leading Ananda now were part of those circles. And Swami used to gather a few of us on Sunday afternoons. It was just very informal. But very soon after I got there, um, I was included in those Sunday afternoons. And after the Sunday satsang was done, and like about two or three o'clock, we'd come over for tea, and then often we'd stay, you know, we'd cook dinner and stay late into the night. I mean, I'm talking about four or five people. This was not a big group. But he would talk to us sometimes about many things. And I remember very early, because we were sitting on the little porch of the first house he lived in, and he said, uh, first, Ananda will develop in California. Then he said we would develop on the east coast of the United States. Not all of the prophecies tr proved true, but we tried it sequentially. Um, the east coast of the United States. Um, then we'll go to Europe. And then we'll go to Australia. And then we'll go to India. And, uh, I, you know, we're sitting here with nothing and I'm thinking to myself, I didn't disbelieve him. My, my relationship to Swami was, um, Swami himself said about Master, him, him, about, Swami said about himself and Master. He said, I followed Master unhesitatingly, but never unquestioningly. And that was how I was with Swami. I, I had a lot of faith in my own ideas. I would say, in retrospect, way too much faith in my own ideas. They were just based on nothing, but nonetheless, I just believed them. And I, I, was, I never would take anybody's word for anything. I mean, even still, I, I'm quite annoying, actually, because I just, I have to understand it. People ask me the simplest question, and I have to dismantle it down to its basic principles, and then I'll remantle it and say, yes, I'll have a cup of coffee, you know, after I look. <laughs> I'm not quite that bad, but it's real close to it. So at the same time, I had from the, from literally from the moment I met him, I had this intuitive faith in Swamiji, which was just the grace of God that I thank God for every day. I just knew uh, that he was uh, 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 an order of magnitude different from anything I'd ever known. And the chances of, of my being right and him being wrong was really pretty close to zero. <laughs> Effectively, for all practical purposes, it was zero. But nonetheless, if he said something that I didn't understand, I was congenitally incapable of just saying, of believing it. But nor could I disbelieve it. So I would just, I just had like a whole, well, I called it a shelf in my mental closet, where I would just package up all these things that seemed so out of possibility to me and I just stick them up there and then year by year literally you know to the present I would take them down and when I would look at them now they all make perfect sense to me but I, I they didn't make sense at the time how we were ever going to be a, an international network of communities just seemed uh, ludicrous is the only word I can think of just completely ludicrous but he said so so there it was. Maybe we were going to do it. And I, I was willing. I was willing to do anything. It didn't make any difference to me at all. But uh, I also loved the way we were living. There was a moment when, uh, this was again very early, this woman named Mary Von Tobel and I, Swamiji would make up jobs for you so you could come over there. In the path he talked about how he and Norman dug a swimming pool for Swamiji, for Master at the Desert Retreat. And Swami commented that Master never used it, but it was just a way to have him and Norman be there and keep working. So Swami would make up projects and 
things for us to do and you know clean his house or help him with his files or do something when we were cleaning a, helping him sort through some things we came to a reading that had been done by Brighu um, when Swamiji was here and it said it spoke of his his life as a world teacher and the thousands of people who would know him and all that would happen and my friend Mary and just in a very sort of teenage way she just said wow that sounds cool you know this sort of something like on that level and uh, I thought to myself but that means that we won't be living like this we won't have this extraordinary precious you know isolated life where we all get to be together all the time and uh, Swami and I sort of intuitively uh, communicated like that and I remember he just looked at me and he said these are the good old days is how he put it because of that later on it came up again when he wrote the path which was the uh, which is now called the new path um, it was the last book he wrote before the computers were invented and he wrote it from about 73 or 74 to 76 that was the span of time that I uh, worked as his secretary and then I was replaced by Keshava actually <laughs> um, and I typed his manuscript because he edited so much and went without a computer you just had to keep retyping and then it was the book was finally done and he was we were in the, the interlude he, he actually came to India for seclusion a long seclusion and left some of us there to publish the book which we did but I remember it, it was he and I and Seva were in the house Seva was sort of my um, my, my twin sister spiritually speaking and uh, he was talking very seriously about the assignments he'd had from Master to that he felt to start this community and, and Master had told him that Swamiji needed to write about Master and it was a, a big important assignment that Swami had I'll back up just a little Swami started that book I think twice before he really was able to get into it and the day he started that proved to be the trajectory of when he finished I was working as his secretary then but Swami would spend his days in solitude writing and I and others worked on the other side of the hill it was about a mile away walking over the hill in uh, the publications building which we'd built by then and there was uh, no phones there was like a phone at, at the publication building but no phone where Swami was and again no email no computers so at the end of about four o'clock every day Seva and I and a few others sometimes would walk back across the hill and would um, tell Swami what had happened that day <laughs> any messages that had come we'd bring the physical mail and so on and he would just be quiet and alone when he was starting the day he was starting to work on that book really starting I remember I came in and he was sitting on the floor and he had all these piles of paper around him and they were all disparate little pieces big pieces little and uh, some of them handwritten some of them typed and they were you know just piled around like this and he was basically organizing his notes from the years when he was with Master and other notes that he's taken and I remember I walked in and he, he didn't get up from the floor he just sort of looked up and he pointed to all of this and said how am I ever going to turn this into a book about Master 
just like that which was interesting because when I had 15 bankers boxes full of notes file boxes full of notes and I'm looking at all of that and thinking how am I ever going to turn this into a book <laughs> you know, just a lot of things about Swamiji well I learned them as I wrote but I remember him like that but he did of course it was a tremendous effort and he did and then it was all done and he said you know now I've done it I've done my best and there was this uh, tremendous detachment from it which again I've, I've experienced all these things myself now so all of this is much more vivid than it was at the time tremendous detachment from it he said I've always felt that Ananda would be built upon this book because you know at that time nobody had written about master there was autobiography of a yogi and that was that even you know the direct disciples we didn't have this global communication system that we have now and nobody had published even to this day hardly anybody has published alas 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 you know the people who knew master very few have written about it this was the first real book so he said I always thought Ananda would 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 be built and I knew how he expected Ananda to grow and uh, he said I it's I've given it to Divine Mother it's up to her now and then he talked a little bit about what he thought might happen from this book which is basically this everything that's happened since and I again in my attachment you know just sitting there with Swami and Seva and me which is which was a very common event to just have that kind of uh, access and uh, closeness physical I mean spiritual closeness is something else um, I said can I burn the manuscript <laughs> and Swami after all that we'd worked on to do that book and you know this was not it wasn't there was no computer disk and there were very few copies even can I burn the manuscript I mean he, he just looked like you know I've, I've, I'm, ha I'm, I'm sheltering a mad woman <laughs> and then of course he, he understood what I was saying because he, he was humorous and he knew that I was making a, 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 a joke on point so he looked first he just looked shocked then he looked amused because he knew what I meant then he got really serious you know he said I've given it to Divine Mother it's completely in her hands and it was even it was actually even more profound than that it was it's not my book because I've given it to Divine Mother and when you give something to God you don't take it back and and then he actually spoke about he understood he understood that the freedom that we had we wouldn't have forever and that this was you know something to be treasured and then we'd go on and the simplicity just there's so many factors that you can hear um, so let me think where was I with all of this I may have lost I, oh anyway so coming back to I I'd started back a long time ago when I was talking about the different levels on which we live and I was saying back that first Christmas and that I was experiencing personal tumult in, in, in my little universe because we're all the center of our own little universe if there's a tornado going on in your own little universe as far as you're concerned everything is tornado I've gotten a little older now and I'm not quite so nutty 
I was pretty nutty at that point. Um, but I, I was just very upset a lot of the time. And I, I had these big wads of tissue that I would, you know, keep because I expressed my upset often like this. And, and the, the Christmas Eve, which I, which was just exquisite, I write about it in the book and I've talked about it so often, because it was the first time I'd ever actually um, experienced Christ on, on, in any way. I, fortunately, I wasn't a Jewish person who was prejudiced against Christ. I was saved. It was, I, it's a, a pun. I wasn't saved from the Christian's point of view, but <laughs> I was saved from that prejudice. So it was just a blank slate. So everything that happened just came in, and nothing, nothing resisted it. And Swamiji has a beautiful singing voice, and there was a woman named Kalyani who lived in the community for many years and was also part of Swami's close circle. She was often with us, Seva and me. And uh, she, she had a beautiful singing voice, and she also was trained on the piano. And we had a, you know, a beautiful harmonium, and it actually was able to have foot pedals. It was the, the British field organ type. Mostly we played it in the Indian style, but she hooked it up with the foot pedals so that she could have both hands on the keyboard. So she sat at the keyboard and with the music, and Swami stood right here next to her. And there was a number of other good singers, but they were really the core of it. And they both knew a lot of classical songs. So they sang many different beautiful songs, and then all these Christmas carols. And it was, uh, you know, my, my experience of Christmas carols was going into a department store in December and having them play over the intercom so that you'd buy more presents for people. You know, just very little, because I wasn't, never went to a church. So I never really heard um, real devotional songs like that. I never heard Christmas songs like that, where somebody was singing them who really knew what they were singing. And it, it, was, uh, it was another universe. And it, it was snowing. We were six miles back, uh, three miles back on dirt road, and uh, it was snowing. It was actually blizzarding. And... Uh, all we had was gas lights. It was absolutely silent because of the snow. And, you know, we were, we could have been on another planet. It had no relationship to any other reality. And I, I remember, even now, you can hear what it meant to me. For years afterwards, just, I would tell people, it really doesn't matter, you know, if, you're, if your family disowns you, you have to stay at Ananda for Christmas. You just have to be there. What doesn't matter, it's fine. You'll, you'll find another way to live. It'll be okay. <laughs> but you must be there because of what it, what it meant. I did that for, I said that for years. And then like about, well, it might have even been 10 years later. Yeah, it would have been 10 years later, even more. I was saying that to someone. No, it was eight years to be exact, just to be honest. I was saying it to someone, and this picture flashed in my mind. And the picture was me. And every time I thought about that Christmas, there was an odd feature to it, which was that I was seeing, I was seeing Swamiji and Kalyani and all of them singing from a little bit of a distance. I mean, not blocks away, but from the opposite side of the room. And it always puzzled me because it was my nature more to get right into the center of things. But that visual memory was always from the opposite side of the room. And then I finally remembered, we had this, there was a big oil heater in that. And there was a little space between the heater and the wall. I was kind of hunkered in that space. 
because my little personal hurricane was just, you know, causing me to weep and like this. So I was huddled over there with my Kleenex. And I, I watched. I watched it rather than participated in it, at least for the part that I most remember vividly. Now here is the weird part. I didn't even remember that, literally for eight years. All I remembered was that my soul was in ecstasy because I had found my spiritual home, I had found my spiritual path, I, was, I had this life with Swamiji, everything was, was just what it should be. The fact that I was just falling apart emotionally was like so trivial compared to everything that was really happening. And so much so that I just forgot and all I remembered was the other part. That was, that was probably the most important lesson I learned that Christmas. And, and it, I, put it back to, I put it together with another experience from that time from Swamiji. This is after he had the dome over at Ayodhya. If, for those of, few of you who have seen Crystal Hermitage, there's this big dome in the, which is now just the living room of the house because there's these other wings. At the time, at that time, that was the only house there was. Actually, in the book, one of the first pictures is Swami standing in that dome. The dome was very high ceiling, but it was partitioned with these partitions that didn't go all the way to the ceiling. So there was an office, there was a bedroom, and so on. And uh, this would have been, maybe, maybe it started riding the path by this point. And every Thursday night, he would invite the community over, which was somewhere between 30 and 40 people. There was a whole group of people who weren't in tune with Swamiji, who eventually had all their houses burned down in 1976, and they all went away. But the, the core of the community was about 30 or 40 people. And every Thursday, he'd invite us over to his house, and then he would read us what he'd written. And then sometimes, if he hadn't been writing, he would still just have us over on Thursday. It was just part of what we were doing. And I remember one of those. There, there was these big windows in the dome, like half the wall was windows. And when it was winter time, there it would rain real heavy and it would snow quite a lot. Weather has changed, but then it snowed a lot. And most of us did not have cars, and the people who did have cars, their cars couldn't get onto those roads. So we just walk across at night with a flashlight in a rain suit and boots and jackets and we'd come into that house and it would be wood heated and gas lit and we'd just unpile all of this stuff and just pile it on the table and then sit here again and again it was another planet we were so far and then through the big windows if it was clear you would see the moon if it was snowing you'd see the snow and it and it that house looks just over a canyon and we just sit there with Swami, and I don't know how many, you know, it was one of those, are we in the Himalayas, are we in the catacombs, you know, just where are we? You, you'd really disconnect. There, there's so many, you know, we know what incarnation we're in because we're reinforced. We're reinforced by the what we see around us, we're reinforced by the news, we're reinforced by uh, familial relationships, just traditions. When you pluck yourself out of all of that and you're just your consciousness in what, what became familiar, which was actually more f familiar on a soul level than anything else I'd ever experienced, but still, you, you don't have many reference points. The reference point was, was myself and Swami, basically. And, and that reference point 
you know, had such an arc of uh, experience and incarnations behind it. Later on, Swami would talk about, you know, William the Conqueror being master and him being Henry and uh, Fernando III in Spain and him being Alfonso and master being Arjuna. I mean, I got, I got more context for it, but I, I just knew it anyway without having any names for it. I'm not given to visions. I never saw, I never saw anything to this day, but I just knew it. But we were sitting there and it was a particularly elevated evening. You never know exactly what the combinations are. And uh, let's see now. Well, there were two things that Swamiji said. First he said, uh, he said, when self-realization comes, in, in the moment of liberation, I presume, uh, in the book, uh, The Light of Asia, poetically, Sir Edwin Arnold describes the moment of Buddha's liberation and it just gives you this extraordinary picture from a poetic point of view of the soul breaking free. I, I don't know if it really happens like that, but that's the picture I always have. Actually, Swamiji said once, uh, in the moment of liberation, when you're conscious, when you realize that there is only one reality in the universe, he said, for just a moment, it's intensely lonely. Isn't that an interesting thought? It's intensely lonely because you're absolutely solitary in the universe. And then he said, but then immediately that experience is replaced by bliss. That's really something to meditate on. Because um, so much of our consciousness is trying to, 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 to escape from that loneliness, to find some way to not be lonely. That's a whole other story. But so he, he was saying at the moment of liberation, he said, um, you realize that all of your past incarnations, which of course is a great big lot of them, all of our past incarnations are just a dream. That they, they seem so real at the time. You know, my, my little experience of that first Christmas Eve, that's, that's the most dramatic experience I've had of what's real and what isn't real. Because it was so real at the time but afterwards it simply wasn't real at all. So when we said, you look back and you just see this string of incarnations, you realize all of it is a dream, and the only thing that it was real in all those incarnations was when you actually had real contact with spirit. Whenever that might have happened, however that might have happened, any time that you transcended and actually were in contact with God, you look back over the whole thing and all of those moments are real. And everything else is just kind of a, a mist blowing around it. So I, I think of that first Christmas and listening to Swamiji and Kalyani and the others sing was real. My personal heartbreak, which was just taking over my life at the moment, was just a dream. And this was so strong that that actually faded even in before, well, clearly before the moment of liberation which has not yet come but it just in no time at all it went away by comparison between the soul and then after Swamiji said that I remember him just looking at us with such compassion and kindness he said 
you're all going to get it right in a, a, a sooner or later, meaning sooner or later you'll realize, God, why waste a few million years? <laughs> you're so sympathetic, you know? Why don't you just do it now? And in the moment it, it seemed like we could. It's like in, in that, the world was just gone. All there was was just that moment in time. But I've always thought about that. Now I wanted to come back. Um, I had a thread that I was weaving and I can remember it now. When I was talking about how Swami, right from the beginning, how he would talk to us and the energy that he would be putting out. And, and I, the Christmas was one of the times I realized how everything was happening on two levels. And when, when that realization came to me, I actually began to think about a lot of things that had happened in those first years. And on one hand, I mean, I was always a, a relatively high-functioning person, but I, my brain is... Um, I can't really think of a word for it. It's, over, it's overactive, you know, overactive. I mean, I'm not actually mentally unbalanced in this life, <laughs> but I have been mentally unbalanced in other incarnations, so I live just on the, on the other side of not, of, of not being completely lunatic. And I'm not because Swami pulled me out of it, really. But my mind just does a lot. Okay, so all those years that I was in the beginning with Swamiji, it's like my mind was always doing something. I remember Swamiji was rarely, rarely rude and almost never sarcastic. I remember only twice in all the years that I knew him that he was ever sarcastic with me. And, uh, and he was rarely unkind. He, was, he could be, he could be uh, I, want, I don't want to use the word blunt, but he could be frank. He could be very frank, but he was always careful. I was a little delicate, and he knew that, so he was also careful with me. But I, I had some of the most lunatic ideas. There were, there were two people in my life, and one of them I, I just loved with all my heart. It was just one of those karmic gifts. And the other one, we were karmic enemies. That's the only way I can put it. As Swamiji said, this is a very old spiritual family. And he said, and in all our incarnations, we have been all things to one another. And, you know, in that particular one, I realized that that was a relationship where, you know, if you really love someone and, you're re and you get really attached to them and you really have strong desires and expectations and that other person does not fulfill those expectations, just as the Gita describes the descent into delusion, you know, does, you, get, you become infatuated and then you have desires and when your desires are frustrated, you get angry and when you get angry, you lose your discrimination. So you can see over many lifetimes how um, very strong attachment can also lead over time to antipathy. I had uh, this man once in a class. Actually, it wasn't a class, it was a letter. This is in the book, Ask Asha. Ask Asha is a book of answers to real questions. I got a letter from this man. Basically... He went around and around a little bit until I finally got what the true story was. His wife really wanted to marry him again and again in future incarnations, and she was determined, and he was less than enthusiastic about that. <laughs> 
So he wanted to understand the fine points of karma here. <laughs> like what was really gonna, what was going to happen in this particular time. <laughs> anyway, and I tried, I did my best. So let me think, where was I before I said that? Let me, I'll drink water and see if I can remember. So I had my two friends, my two dear friends. I mean, I loved them both, but one of them I didn't like. I know that sounds paradoxical, but it was the truth. We were, we were absolute dear, dear friends. I would have given my life for them. But we didn't get along for whatever reason. We didn't get along. So I knew that you were supposed to be even-minded. I had that little fragment of information from some, <laughs> somewhere. So I presented to Swami because he knew that I was always struggling, you know, with this relationship that was just absurdly, you know, negative and I, my emotions were so out of control. But anyway, so I said, well, see, the problem, the problem really is not that I dislike this one, it's that I love this one too much. So if I loved this one less, then they would get more even. <laughs> I just remember he sort of looked at me like this and said, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> he said, no. He said, you have to bring the other one up that you, you love them as much as you love this one. Not bring them, not even them out in that way. But that was the kinds of things my mind would do. He said further, you know, when you have that kind of affinity with another soul, you should thank God for it every day. It's not something that you should treat lightly. You, those are great gifts that are given to us, and, and that what they're given to us is to show us what's possible. Because that's actually how we have to love everyone. So by no means should we diminish that, we have to just raise everything to it. But, um, oh, in the context of all of this, I, also, I realized also when I thought about that Christmas, was that my mind was just always doing something. And uh, fortunately, Swamiji was very um, patient. And I was able to just, he and Jyotish, um, and there was a, a couple of others, my Seva, my friend, I was always able to put in front of them what I was thinking, and they would tell me whether it was the stupidest idea they'd ever heard or not, and I was gradually able to sort it all out. So on one level, my mind was just doing whatever my mind still does to this day. But my heart was absolutely solid. It just never wavered. And it, that sort of, again, I began to also realize um, there was a, a disciple of Master's named Kamala Silva. She's one of the few disciples who did right. She wrote The Flawless Mirror and another one called Priceless, Priceless, Priceless Precepts. Both are beautiful books. She was a really beautiful soul. At the end of her life, she had her, her mind stopped working. I don't want to say she had dementia, because that's not exactly what happened to her, but her, she lost her mind, as some older people do. And uh, for a time there was no one to care for her, so Swamiji brought her to Ananda, and we took care of her at Ananda. And she, she didn't know anything practical, she didn't really know where she was, she thought, she had always had an affection for animals. She thought her stuffed animals were living animals. She'd look out the window and think she was in the Himalayas. Um, you, you know, she, you would introduce yourself. When, when I finally met her, 
She said, tell me your name. She said, I'll immediately forget it, but tell me anyway. And I was with Swamiji when he was telling me about Kamala and that she was going to come. And he said, uh, she's lost her mind. I said, Swami, she's lost her mind. You know, it was like, it just panicked me. She's lost her mind. And I remember he just said, Asha, it's just her mind. And I said, just her mind? You know, like, what can you possibly mean by that? But then I met her. And after I met her, I realized, oh, all she's lost is her mind. <laughs> because she didn't know anything. She couldn't make any sense out of this world. But it was so impressive because she was completely intact. Because she was this vibration of joy. And she could remember Master. She, she, she always knew that she was Master's disciple. And she always knew him and she knew she belonged to him. I'm not sure if she remembered the incidents of her, of her life or not. I didn't know her that well. But it was such an extraordinary thing to be with someone who didn't function at all on the rational level and yet was more whole and wholesome and well than almost anyone else I knew because she, she just abandoned her mind for some reason. And why, I don't know, it was just her karma. And it was her karma to be taken care of. And she herself could really tell the difference and so even though she couldn't deal with anything that she'd normally dealt with, she could deal with everything that she needed to deal with. Which is she knew who she was, she knew who Master was, and she knew that that was enough. It's, it's really an extraordinary thought. And when I was in my first ten years at Ananda, my mind went every direction you could think of, just not trying to sort out this revolution. But my heart just always knew exactly that I was right where I needed to be. It was like, I thought of it later, it was like a steel cable. And that's when I first met Swamiji, in the first ten seconds of knowing him, I just, it, it, I mean, of course, it didn't forge at that point. It was reincarnation. There's no other, absolutely no other explanation. And of course, if you just think of each life just being a chapter in a book, when you turn the chapter in a book, it's not like... It's, it's a sudden surprise that you're still in the same book. You've just turned the chapter. So in truth, when we meet people again, when we all have new bodies, um, there's, it, it doesn't take us long to figure out that we know these people. So I knew Swamiji, and it was just a link like that. And then everything else could spin around it. And to my detriment, because I, I suffered because of it, all the spinning around it caused me a lot of confusion, but nothing ever touched that. And what I, I could sort of see during those early years with the, with the core group of people, what, what happened at Ananda was a lot of people came and went. And as I describe in this book, which is more than I can do this evening, at the beginning, Swamiji, this is what I was saying, those of you who knew him at the end, how different he was, and it wasn't just age. He, he, kept, he kept his his nature sort of veiled is the way I described it. And I actually talked to him about this in 2011. I mean, because people would ask me, you've known Swami such a long time, has he changed? And so I had this conversation. I said, sir, this is what people say. And I say, no. I said, but in the beginning, and it was partly because he had a lot of work to do, 
and and it just wasn't time. There's a very interesting story. This is not Swami Kriyananda, but there's a very interesting story about Ramakrishna Paramhansa. Um, that at some point, because his, he didn't bring his, his God didn't send his disciples to the last years of his life, and at one point he became very radiant with light. He began to literally, Ramakrishna began to glow with the golden light. And naturally that was attracting a lot of attention to him. And for some reason it wasn't time. So there's this story, it must be in M's book, Ramakrishna going up on the roof of the ashram there and just saying to the light, back inside, back inside, back inside, like this. And it did, it just withdrew. Because it wasn't time for him to have that kind of life. So with Swamiji, the, the, mag, the, the bliss magnetism that really became who he was in the last 10 years or so, it was there but it was like under a, under a curtain. And it was partly because, well there were a whole lot of reasons, he had a lot of work to do. And he needed to just be able to do that work. If, he'd, if there had been as many people around him in the same way that they came toward the end, he just wouldn't have been able to do that. And I think the other reason was, in many ways it was interesting. In the early years when Swamiji's, even his position as the spiritual leader of Ananda, hard as that is for many people to understand, it wasn't even clear cut. There was always discussion about whether you know we should really listen to Swami or whether we should just listen to Master directly and and there was even question about whether Swami really represented Master and because SRF was always so eager to tell us that he didn't there was always that sort of in the background the Guru Bhais didn't really support him and what might that mean so if you developed a relationship with Swamiji it came entirely from inside you couldn't just look around and see how you were supposed to respond. You couldn't just walk into it and sort of know what you were supposed to do. Um, you, you had to actually feel it. And there was, no, there was no ceremony around Swamiji. Partly we were Americans and it just wasn't in our reality. And I mean it wasn't until Swami started coming to India and you naturally touched his feet that it occurred to us, oh, we could touch his feet, wouldn't that be nice? You know, it was just like, I remember first being over here and actually seeing in the eyes of some of the Indian devotees that they were a little horrified by the way we behaved around Swamiji because <laughs> it was just so casual. We'd just grown up with him and it was just casual. We just, but he, he insisted on that, not because he had to, but that's just because how he did it. Because he needed a core of people who knew from the inside. It just wasn't time to have anything superficial. So what I was starting to say about the core, it was like a lot of people came and went and then gradually over time people would sort of move in like this. And the, the key to whether you stayed at Ananda was always whether you tuned into Swami or not. If you came because it was a community or if you, you know, you were following Master's teachings and if you came to Ananda you got to live there whereas SRF had no place to live unless you were a monk or a nun or it was the country or anything like that you stayed for a while and then you went away but if you, for whatever reason you came if you finally figured out what was coming from Swamiji then you stayed and when you got to there really in 50 years there's just a handful of people who ever left of that, of that core 
hundreds of people left but of that core very few did but then it was unshakable at that point you know now many of you hardly knew Swami or never met him I want to say this that Swami said to us once he said in many ways it's easier for you because you never met Master strange thing to say because so many people would lament the fact that they never did he said because it was very confusing for us because we knew that we were living with God himself and yet he was next door having dinner <laughs> that's how Swami put it or typing a letter or you know or out, out for a ride in the car and he said and you're just you just didn't know how to relate to those realities he said you all have just known him you know from the spirit from your heart so since so many of these great souls even if they become somewhat known they really become known afterwards you know there's just some other uh, lila that is incomprehensible to us but the, the, the once a master's once a saint's presence is in the universe it's there forever and it's as accessible um, at any point in time or space as it ever has been so some of us had one reality and other people will have another reality but the reality of Master and Swamiji are entirely independent of us you know it's a, a, a radiant force in the universe um, that is ours to receive if we choose and it is our great good fortune you know that the opportunity has been given to us so bless you